Well, amen. Rob Bell, Michael and Lisa Gunger, Jen Hatmaker, Josh Harris and Shannon Bond, Marty Sampson. Um, just a few of all familiar and former influential evangelical Christians who at one time professed faith in Christ and were part of his visible covenant community. Actually, some of them weren't just a part of his covenant community. They were pastors, pastors' wives, worship leaders. But they've all now consciously and intentionally renounced their belief in Christ. They have left the faith. And I say that, and I've used that term or the inflection on the the, because some of them still claim to have faith. But it's not the faith, it's a different faith from the faith that Jude describes as the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And these are just, like I said, they're just a few of the more well-known There are countless numbers of others who have followed that same course or or are currently on that course. Some of them are on that course alone. Others are with, um, well, they're moving arm in arm with others because there are not just individuals, but churches and denominations that are slowly drifting away from historic Christian orthodoxy. They're embracing things like mysticism and legalism and feminism, uh, the social gospel, things like critical theory. Some are becoming affirming, just to name a few. And while those individuals that I named and others, while they come from different backgrounds, and while they're um, they're apparent apostasy was precipitated by a number of different things. And while they have ended up at different places and various places along the faith and spirituality um, spectrum, they all have one thing in common. And that one thing that they have in common is they all didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know, I'm tired of being a Christian. I think I'll try something new. Or they didn't wake up and, and over a cup of coffee decide, you know, I just don't believe in Christ anymore. Because the reality is, every person, every church, every denomination that has forsaken Christ or renounced their faith, in some cases, and and those who in some cases have reverted back to an old way of thinking and an old way of life, or those who are now on a new course of a new way of thinking and a new way of life, have all been, in the words of the old song, by mercy me, they've all been on the slow fade. But in the words of the writer of Hebrews, they've all been drifting and they've been drifting for a while. And there are two factors that have led to that fade. There are two factors that have led to that drifting. And one is at some point they've begun to neglect God's word generally and and the gospel specifically. And then secondly, there has been a failure on their part to push against prevailing behavior or norms and attitudes of the world. In other words, they have determined at some point to go with the flow. 
And that's ultimately, ultimately what's led to, in Paul's words, and as I use with the children, and you, you are going to hear several times tonight, it ultimately led to the shipwreck of their faith. Well, the author of Hebrews, having graciously comforted the afflicted in chapter 1, is now going to afflict the comfortable at the beginning of chapter 2. And he is going to dress address... And actually, he is going to present the first of several warnings that are contained in this letter. As the heading in many of your Bibles indicates, it's a warning against neglecting salvation. It's a warning to pay attention to the word, to pay attention to the gospel and to not go with the flow. And it is as relevant for us today as it was to his original readers. Vitally important for us to, to hear tonight. So as Wes read a moment ago from Hebrews 2, 1 to 9, our outline, which is in the back of your bulletin, will look like this. There is a warning to heed, or we are to heed the warning. We are to hear the testimony, and then finally, we're to hope in Christ. Heed the warning, hear the testimony, hope in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, would you by your spirit allow us tonight to see and hear the truth about Christ and to hear it in such a way that our souls expand. And as our souls expand, may he expand. Open our eyes and our ears and enlighten our minds in such a way that we find him bigger this week. May we see him and consider him more fully and completely. And as we do, help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him. And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus, the son in whom we hope. Amen. We have your Bibles open to chapter two. If you notice the very first word that he writes is the word therefore, which of course means that whatever is to come. Or whatever follows is going to refer back to or is based on or as a result of everything that's come before. And if we were to summarize that, basically if we were to summarize chapter 1 and to say or to look at what he's saying. He's saying because God has spoken through his son. Because the son was truly God and truly man. And he was the final prophet and the ultimate king and the perfect priest. And because through him... Uh, he, or through, he, he was the one through whom the world was created. He is the one through whom the world is sustained. He is the one through whom propitiation for sins had been made or purification of sins had been made once. And for all of those God chose before the foundation of the world through his atoning work on the cross. Because he has a more excellent name because of his more excellent worship, because of the more excellent reign and his more excellent position. We must. And he says we, he includes himself. But what he's about to say is necessary. Because of who Christ is and all that he has done, he has this warning. And the warning contains both an admonition and something to avoid. He says, pay much closer attention to what they have heard or to what you have heard. That's the admonition. Lest they drift away from it or lest you drift away from it. That's what they are to avoid. And as I mentioned to the children, he uses nautical language. 
And the nautical language expresses, and he does this throughout the letter. We're going to come back to these kinds of phrases and these terms and these ideas. But he's trying to get across a very, very important point. And that point is that they should pay attention or stay the course or to keep their bearings and really remain anchored to who they've heard and to what they've heard. In other words, they are to maintain and pay attention to, close attention to Christ and His message of salvation, the gospel, the full and final word of God, the whole counsel, generally the gospel specifically, because if they don't, they will slip their moorings or they will leave the dock. They will begin to drift. They'll lose their bearings and, be, and, and move off course. Because, again, as I mentioned to the children, not only are there storms and strong winds that can obviously wreak havoc on an unanchored boat, unanchored ship, but there are also those undercurrents and gentle breezes that can move a boat in a way that's almost indetectable. Again, if you're not paying attention, it can happen without even realizing it. It's not an intentional drift. It's not something that the boat wants to do. It wasn't something that Anna wanted to do. It was something that happened due to carelessness and lack of attention. And again, it ultimately led to being off course and even being shipwrecked. And from this morning, we get an idea of where the people were. The original readers, what was going on? We, we get a pretty good idea of what their current state was. They weren't ignorant of the word. They weren't ignorant of the gospel. They had heard the gospel. They had heard it. They weren't even rebelling against it. They weren't even rejecting it. They had at one time fully embraced it and had given it its full attention, the, the attention that it deserved and that they needed to give it. But over a period of time, they began to not only look at it, but to look at other things. They had one eye on Christ and another eye on something else. Or they had one eye on the gospel and and one eye on something else that was being taught. Or one eye on Christ and another eye on, as we mentioned last week, on their circumstances. The persecution. They were looking at their Judaism. It looked like something that could save them. And their divided attention between two things, or their divided attention between, between multiple things, actually led to inattention and neglect of the gospel. Inattention and neglect of the truth. And left unattended, they were inevitably going to make shipwreck of their faith. And in verse 2, through the second half, uh, or through the first half of verse 3, the writer presents a negative reason for why they should heed the warning. He says, I, I want you to understand why this is so important. And here's, here's one of the reasons. He says in verse, uh, verse 2, for since the message declared... 
by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, the law was given or the law was spoken by God through angels to Moses. And we know that through testimony given by Paul and Stephen. They attest to that in the New Testament. And the writer says that that. That law that was spoken by God and mediated through angels to Moses, it was to be followed. It was to be obeyed. And every breaking of it, and, and we, we went over this in Leviticus, right? So every intentional or unintentional breaking of it meant that there was a price to pay. It was going to be fair and equitable, but the sin needed to be atoned for. And the writer says that that being the case, how much more reliable is the gospel? Because the gospel was spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't mediated by angels. It was mediated by the Son. And how much more accountable will people be for their neglect of it? One commentator said this, the concern is for one's attitude. The one who has let the greatness of Christ slip away. The one who no longer marvels at the atonement. The one who no longer has a desire for the word. The one who really does not pray in his spirit. The one who is drifting back to where he came from and has little concern about that drifting. To such, the writer says there is no escape from the terrible consequences. In fact, if we think the consequences were stern for disregarding the law, how much more catastrophic will the punishment be for ignoring the gospel? Very strong words. Words that Calvin agreed with. He said it's not only the rejecting of the gospel, but even the neglecting of it that deserves the severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace which he offered in it. God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser is our ingratitude if they do not have the proper value for us. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. Well, having said heed the warning, the writer, the author, now says, hear the testimony. It's in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. He says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And these verses really serve as a positive reason to heed the warning, right? We just heard the very negative reason for hearing the warning. If we neglect our salvation, there is a serious price to pay. But now there's a positive reason. Warning, there's a a positive reason for this warning to be heeded. And it has four parts to it. Notice he says, first, they should pay attention and not drift because the gospel comes from Christ himself. It is the son himself who has spoken. It was a message spoken by the son. It was revealed by the son. It was fulfilled by the son. It was a full and final word because he was the final prophet. It was a. It was an ultimate and authoritative word because he was the ultimate king. It was it was the perfect and complete word because he was the perfect priest. 
And so there was nothing to be added to his person or work or ministry. And so there was nothing to add to his word. Therefore, pay much closer attention. Secondly, he says it was a message attested to or confirmed by eyewitnesses. In other words, by the apostles. The apostles had been with him and and they attested to and confirmed the message. They had heard Christ. Christ had passed that message on to them and those around them. and, And they in turn had passed it on to the writer and those in his group. They heard eyewitness testimony. And so they should heed that word. They should heed the warning Because those who were with Jesus throughout his ministry and throughout his life and death and resurrection had given testimony of that message and of their faith in that message. And so the writer says, we've heard that. We must pay much closer attention to the message we've heard. Thirdly, he says it was a message attested to or confirmed by signs and wonders and various miracles. Those works and miracles and those signs that validated the ministry of Christ, validated the ministry of the apostles. It was those works that had validated the the building of the church. They validated Christ and his message. So the writer says, these eyewitnesses saw these signs and we've heard about these signs and miracles and wonders. And Jesus was who he said he was. And the church has been established upon their testimony. We need to pay much closer attention to the message that they've shared. And then finally, he says that the message was attested to or confirmed by the gifts of the spirit. That were being exercised within the church. Christ had said he was going away. He was ascending and he was going to send the spirit. And the spirit came and began bestowing gifts on believers They were to be exercised within the local church. And these Hebrew Christians had been experiencing those gifts being exercised in the church. And the writer says, those signs, those are signs, those gifts that you're exercising. They attest to the authenticity of the message of Jesus. Pay much closer attention to what's being said. So the author really just says... What the message is and what you've heard, it's not a myth, it's not a fable, it's not something that I've dreamed up, it's not something I've made up on my own, it's not a figment of my imagination. It was a message of fulfillment. It was, it was a message, you know, the law mediated through, through the angels had been fulfilled by Christ. And it was Christ to whom God had spoken fully and finally. So his was a better message, it was a greater message and it needed to be paid attention to and should not be neglected. Well, then finally, in verses five to nine, having again afflicted the comfortable, we re- the author returns to comfort, right? comforting those who have been afflicted. And he does so by continuing his defense of why Christ is better than the angels that we saw through the second half or, or most of chapter two, but we saw last week. And that he also not only says that Christ is better than the angels, but he also does what he did through most of the second half of chapter one, which was interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. And what he does is, is provide yet another reason why we should pay attention and not neglect what we've heard. And he says, we must hope in the Lord Jesus. Hope in Christ Christ. 
He says in verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. He repeats what he said about the Lord Jesus last week and about angels. Christ is better than angels because angels have not. The world has not been subject to angels. Angels, in other words, angels are not going to rule and reign. They're going to serve. So it's the same message that he had just finished last week. And then he builds on this argument by quoting from Psalm chapter 8. And he quotes verses 4 to 6 of Psalm 8. That, by the way, we sang as we first began this evening. And what I would like to do is read the entirety of the psalm for context, context sake, not simply from Hebrews. The psalm reads this way. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, verses four to six in the context of the entire psalm. We find David expressing wonder and awe at the creation of the Lord. He's he is in awe of the fact that he's he's just marveling in the fact that in the midst of the vastness and grandeur of creation and the universe that he's thought about and cares about man. David feeling very You've done it as well as I have. You've been out on those nights when there aren't any lights, but you can see the stars. And you look, and it just keeps going and going and going. The, the stars keep appearing. Every time you think it's going to stop, you just you see another one. And David is in that position, and he's seeing those stars as they appear, and he's looking at the vastness of, of the universe and creation, and he's, he's feeling really small, as we all have. And he's marveling in the fact that he thought of and cared about man at all. It, but he says, yes, you made him a little lower than angels. You gave him a body. He doesn't have as much power as angels, but God created man in his own image. God created him in his own image and he placed him in the garden to rule and reign and exercise dominion over creation. And David's going, what? But then the writer adds his own commentary. In verse 8, he says, comment here, verses 8 and 9, but he says in verse 8, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And more than likely, as they're reading that letter or hearing that letter, initially the thoughts would have been, you've got that right. Right? They're in the midst of persecution. So there is, there, man is not in proper subjection to everything. 
that things have gone awry. This is not what God intended. And we actually see subjection in a, in a sinful way. We're seeing man do things that they shouldn't do. They're experiencing the fallenness in man. And they're attempting to and unable to exercise their dominion as they should. But he continues. That, that's what they initially hear, but, but he continues. And he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And then he comes with this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's the first time he's used the name. And he says that it's Jesus who is the eternal son and took on flesh and dwelt among his people. He is the one. To whom everything has been everything has been placed in subjection to him. As one commentator said, whereas the height of exaltation for man is in being made a little lower than the angels, it was for Jesus the depth of his humiliation. Jesus, this is a great statement, Jesus stooped to reach down to the height of man's glory. And the writer of Hebrews explains why. Everything was in subjection to Jesus. He says, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was through his suffering and death and then his subsequent ascension, resurrection and ascension, that Jesus the Son was crowned with glory and honor. He's been exalted because of his obedience. He was obedient to the point of death. And God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. And every knee will bow to him because he is the ultimate king. All things have been placed under his feet. He is the second Adam, came to do what Adam did not do. And he did that on the behalf of man, on the behalf of sinners like you and me. And the author, and yet the author acknowledges that at the present time, not only does it not appear that or it's obvious that man is not ruling well, but he even says it, it, yes, it appears as though Christ is not ruling well. But what does he say? Don't look at your circumstances. He says, but we see him. He is ruling and reigning. He is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, and, and we should see him. We should look to Jesus. He is reigning spiritually over his kingdom. And having died in the place of man, he actually secured, he actually secured an eventual and full and complete restoration of man's original position. And mandate. And that they would. Rule and reign with him. So if we were to take all of that. It's, it's a lot to take in. And it can be overwhelming. 
I've tried to summarize it in this way. Three things that the author is doing here. One, he's describing the world as man sees it. Right? Not being under the subjection of men. Struggling to see the subjection to Christ. Two, he's describing the world as it really is. Christ. The world under Christ's subjection spiritually. And third, he's saying, listen, he's trying to describe that everything is under and will be under Christ's subjection triumphantly. In other words, it's, it's as man sees it. He's describing it at the world as man sees it, the world as it is, and the world as it will be. There will be a triumphal subjection. And in that in that triumph at his return, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, those for whom he died, will rule and reign with him. So he says, don't look at your circumstances. Look to Jesus. Three things. As we think about ourselves tonight. Three points to consider. First, I think it would be naive for us to think that we don't deal with the problem of drifting. I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say it that it is a problem that we face. You know as well as I do that our attention is divided in many different directions throughout the course of a day and throughout the uh, course of a week. We're drawn in so many directions and, and we're drawn in different directions by things that aren't necessarily bad. But they still lead to a divided attention. And our busyness that we're involved in can cause us to neglect that which is important, of most importance, and that being Christ and His gospel. We aren't ignorant of the truth. There, doesn't, there, there may not be any overt rebellion or rejection of the gospel going on at all. But we do face obvious and subtle undercurrents. Undercurrents within the culture, even within the church, that are being communicated by very strong personalities. They are coming through well-thought-out well strategies and agendas that on, on, the, on the surface seem very innocent. On the surface, they seem loving and empathetic and for the common good and in some cases even biblical. But under the surface, they are quietly and subtly and unperceptibly drawing people away from the truth. And even to move from the ship back to Anna's example, even the occasional touching of the ground not enough. Many are breaking away from their anchor. And they're drifting perilously away from the truth. There's also the problem of, I was talking to Hans this week, and there's this, also this problem of harboring secret sin. And it's sin that we seek to protect because we love it more than we love Christ, to be honest. And then what happens is we, we seek and focus on how we might maintain it. 
And therefore begin to ignore that which we've been told and taught and that we've heard and that we've read that. That we're to do to kill it. And the bottom line is that our inattention leads to deterioration. Our inattention to the gospel leads to the deterioration of our faith and our spiritual lives. And and the world and our hearts kind of pair up. They're this corrupt duo that when, when we leave it unattended, when we leave them unattended, it leaves us apathetic and complacent spiritually. We don't intend to drift. It just happens naturally. So ignoring Christ, ignoring His Word, ignoring and, and failing to take advantage of what the Lord provides for us by the ministry of His Spirit, through the simple means of grace, word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. And our hearts drift toward what is natural. Pride. Lust, anger, selfishness, greed. And again, we end up shipwrecked. And of, and of course, hear me, we believe, of course, in the perseverance of the saints due to God's preservation of us. We believe in that wholeheartedly. We believe the scripture teaches that. And we're not afraid of ever losing our salvation because we didn't do anything to secure it in the first place. We didn't secure it. We can't lose it. But we also know that there are those who profess Christ who have not been truly born again. And that's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Peter speaks out in 2 Peter 1 and says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So the the warning must be given and the warning must be heeded just as the writer of Hebrews is doing. We need to hear that same warning. We must not break away from Christ who is our anchor. We must not lose sight of Him. We must pay much closer attention to the gospel. Pay much closer attention to His word. To avoid drifting. Secondly. Signs and wonders and miracles and even gifts of the Spirit are not ends in and of themselves. Today there is this desire to, to put them in a place that they should not be. Because God bore witness, past tense, through signs and wonders and miracles in order to attest to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those signs and miracles and wonders were to attest to the ministry of the apostles who were the foundation upon which the church was built. And we today, we do not need those signs and miracles and wonders. We have His Word. And not only do we have His Word, we have the work of the Spirit miraculously bringing salvation to people who are spiritually dead. We see miracle, the miracle of salvation and need nothing more than that. We've also been given gifts. We see those gifts being, being worked out within our body. 
the Spirit has gifted us. And we've, we see that throughout the week. And, and, and when, we, when we gather on Sundays. And so we see what's going on. We see the building up of the body to full maturity. Into our head who is Christ. That is what attests to. And, and gives us reason for. Positive reason for. Paying attention to what we've heard. And then finally. No matter what circumstance or what circumstances you might be facing or in right now. No matter pain you may be experiencing. No matter trials you may be in the midst of. Regardless of a diagnosis that you've received. Regardless of any ill treatment or harm that you have absorbed. Regardless of the dysfunction and hurt that has marked your relationships. Hear the concluding remarks from the author. See him. See Jesus. Look to and hope in Christ. He is in fact ruling and reigning. He has taken the guilt and the shame and the sin, the grief and the pain of all those who put their trust in Him and Him alone for their salvation. He has taken it. He's dealt with it fully and finally and completely. The author of Hebrews says, see Him. And as I've said many times, I was thinking about this, I probably shouldn't say it because I've concluded several times this way, but the, the author, the old hymn writer agrees, right? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Whatever's going on, but we see Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.